Hello, I'm Liz Jones. If you read my diary in the Mail on Sunday's You magazine, then you'll know me and my life pretty well. But if you've always wanted to know more, this is the place for you. Welcome to Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast. I'll be taking you behind the scenes of this week's column before digging back into the archives to find some of the most shocking and hilarious stories from the last 20 years. I'll be doing all this with the help of my assistant, friend and confidant, Nick. Hello. It's quite rousing, isn't it? So, Pop Pickers, Nick and I have been watching the first three episodes of The Crown. No, it's not The Crown. Let's see, it's Harry and Meghan. But it's more riveting (laughs) than The Crown. I I honestly would love to know how many people have gone out, rushed out and got Netflix just to watch this. They've got to have got their numbers up. Everyone I've talked to over the past couple of days, they're just like, go away, I'm watching Harry and Meghan. What did you think of it? Well... You know, I'm quite sympathetic to Meghan. Yes, well, you are the doppelganger, etc. Yes, we're often mistaken in the street. They either think I'm Michael Jackson or Meghan. You know, I am quite sympathetic to the fact she did have a life. She had a career to make it in Hollywood or even to be in a TV, cable TV series. Okay, she's not Grace Kelly, but she had several million dollars in her bank account she had a done quite well for herself yeah yeah but there was a moment in harry and megan where i actually changed my mind do you know what that moment was it's when she mimed bowing to the queen uh you know what that i didn't like that either but you could see from Harry's face he didn't like it either. He was no. very uncomfortable. He didn't know whether to laugh, whether to tell her off. And, you know, there's been lots of discussion about her laughing, about bowing to the ground in front of the Queen. You know, the whole sort of racist argument and being an American and being an actress and prejudice and unconscious bias. But she's... She, clearly thinks it's okay to be very rude about us well, and, and about is, bowing to the Queen. I mean, that's that's Harry's whole life, isn't it, she's joking about. And people would have been bowing to him and curtsying to him his whole life. Yeah. It's not just the Queen. And he would have had to bow to the yeah. Queen, the same as Margaret had to bow to the, her sister. And, you know, as a, a sort of former military man, and he said, you know, I've been to war twice... He knows the gravitas of saluting and only saluting when you're in uniform. And he knows the gravitas of hierarchy. You know, the reason hierarchy exists in the army is because if you're under fire, you need to bloody well do what you're told or you're dead, you know. So I could see that Harry was very uncomfortable when Meghan was sort of put her arms out like an aeroplane and was laughing, laughing about bowing to a woman who's now dead, who was very welcoming to her. That was a moment, I think, that really the the veneer came off Meghan. That revealed her whole 
attitude to these ridiculous English people who have all these ridiculous rules and regulations. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I still believe, especially even having seen this, because I was, I mean, this is only the first three episodes and it's aimed at the media, it's aimed at the press, and completely understandably, because the press do hound them, you know, it is very invasive. Yeah, but as a member of the press, and someone who works who's worked for the Daily Mail since about 2003, those rules have changed. Yeah. You know, they had footage of Diana being hounded. That isn't allowed no. anymore. Rightly you're so. not allowed to, to hound them in the, in, you know, you're not allowed to hack their phones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the images have been very misleading, saying that, you know, they took secret pictures of her with the baby mm. when, in fact, it was a press call and there's only three of them there and they have permission. But it's going to be biased, isn't it? You know, the editorial side of stuff, the trailers, it was all very dramatic. It was like there was going to be these big bombshells, which actually so far in the first three episodes haven't come. It's it's very editorially dramatic. And Harry comes across to me as quite vulnerable. You know, he's, he's, he was a young kid. He'd lost his mum. He was obviously hugely traumatised. And all he wants to do is protect his family. You can see that. You can see he's besotted. And she's clearly a very strong woman. She's intelligent. She's beautiful. And I'd I'd hate to say this, but I do think she's more intelligent than Harry. I thought that come across. No disrespect to Harry, but she's obviously the smart one. I I think if she'd have wanted to have made it work, she would have made it work. She's clever. She's tenacious. She's beautiful. She's she's an actress. She could she could wing it. And if she felt all this business of no one taught me this, no one taught me that, it, there's no rule, but what about her husband? But also as an actress, you would, you could Observe. learn that role. Observe. You could say, okay, I'm going to be a princess. I'm going to rehearse. Yeah. I'm going to learn the national anthem. I'm going to learn what the posture is and everything. I'm going to become that persona. Well, where's Harry? Well, why's Harry not saying, okay, when we go into the room today... You'll meet my grandmother, you, you'll have to curtsy to her, then you'll have to curtsy to, to, I don't know, my dad. This is how we do it. Why isn't he teaching her what to do? He's done this his whole life. It's not new to him. And I did find all the PDAs offensive, all the kissy-kissy pictures. Do you know what I mean? But also she was recording the moment he proposed to her yeah. in the garden. Whereas actually, if a... If a guy is proposing to you and you've got your phone out, they're going to be quite pissed off, aren't they? It's just, it's yeah. I mean, you kind of would hope to be in the moment, wouldn't you? You'd want to experience it, not record it. So, yeah, there was a lot about it I didn't like. I did like lots of Beagle, though. Yes, there were moments when she was in an open space with Guy and I did really think, having been with Nick and her beagle for a year now, I did think, Megan, why are you not screaming, Guy, 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 Guy? Why was he not running off into the distance? Well, I examined it, and I think mostly he was on a lead. Was he? I think Guy he was, was on a lead. I think he was mostly on a lead. That is why she wasn't screaming That's an blue exclusive, murder. isn't it? Yeah, because if he wasn't on a lead... If you've got a beagle, have had anything to do with a beagle, ever met a beagle or even seen a beagle in your line of vision, you know that what you're going to be doing is screaming their name. Guy! 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 So I can't wait for the next the next three. And You know, it, it really did paint the British media 
as the devil in, in the scenario, although most of the headlines were from American publications. But as a member of the British press, I would absolutely heart on hand, hand on heart. Hand on heart. On Grace's life, Grace say, Grace. I've never, ever, ever had an editor say to me, can you stick the knife in Megan? No. Ever. You've been never, super supportive never. of her. You know, when I wrote about Kate and Megan going to Wimbledon together, Megan came out top in the, in the dress stakes. I said that she completely trumped Kate. I've written quite a few negative pieces about Kate or Catherine. You know, when she was on the cover of Vogue, I gave it a very bad review. I said it was just like she was dressed by Bowden. And the editor of Vogue complained to the editor of the Mail on Sunday that I was being so mean about Vogue and Catherine. And I said, you know, the whole thing was, oh, she loves the outside. You yeah, know, yeah. stalking the malls is her natural habitat. I said her natural habitat is a branch of Reese on the King's Road. Yeah, That's yeah. her natural habitat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're unilaterally mean about everyone, really. to hear what this week's archive is so february 2019 i'm just called by the editor very early in the morning and he said what do you think about megan and the bananas and i'm like oh dear god and all so what i do fergie thing isn't it you know that's to fill you with horror well when i get calls like that i pretend that i know what they're talking about so i'm quickly googling megan and bananas thinking oh dear god what's she been doing and this was about her going to visit a charity called 125 in Bristol, and they give out food to sex workers. But there was no agenda. The editor didn't say to me, right, you know, you've really got to lay into Megan. You know, you you make up your own mind according to what they're doing. And if what they're doing is crazy, you call it out, you know? So this is my piece. It's a shame it wasn't sort of on the screen, really, in the Netflix documentary. You could have had Megan and the Bananas up on the screen. And my name, you see. Name. I could have died happy then, couldn't I? <laughs> so February 2019, I have an idea, the Duchess of Sussex announced ominously on Friday afternoon before asking for a marker pen. She helped pack food parcels for sex workers. Just imagine what went through the mind of Anna Smith chief exec of the charity 125 in Bristol, at that moment. Megan wasn't about to sign her autograph, surely. No, that would be crass. This wasn't a Hollywood red carpet, but a kitchen in the city's deprived St Paul's district. And oh dear God, what if the Duchess gets ink on her £1,500 chiffon Oscar de la Renta dress? Would the charity have to fit the bill? Would she have to go to Johnson's Dry Cleaners? Hopefully not, after your experience. Megan then asked to be handed the bananas that were included in plastic carrier bags, along with crisps, blankets, condoms. Was this a pregnancy craving? Was she about to eat the prostitute's picnic in search of potassium and carbs? Then she did something very strange indeed. On each banana, Megan carefully inked a self-help message a pick-me-up, a validation, a handy mantra for women who probably don't own IKEA kitchens where they can hang up posters along the lines of keep calm and carry on. I hate those signs. I hate those signs. Keep I'm calm and drink, fuck off, drink basically. Drink Prosecco and it's Prosecco time. Cheap and oh, bastards. Oh, I don't like it. Each banana 
thanks to Megan, now bore the words, you are loved, you are strong, you are special, each one punctuated by a little love heart. Now, now. (laughs) Megan got the idea from a school cafeteria manager in Virginia who'd done something similar last year. I saw this project this woman had started in the States on a school lunch programme, the Duchess explained. On each of the bananas, she wrote an affirmation to make the kids feel really, like, empowered. It was the most incredible idea, this small gesture. Twitter was ablaze yesterday morning with emojis of hearts and flowers and praise along the lines of, Love this, Megan. It's the small things that make a big difference. I don't know a better person, said someone else. And another tweet, she's such a mensch. Even normally sensible newspapers and news websites found the scribbles uplifting and inspirational. Not Liz Jones of the Mail on Sunday. Da, da, da. Apparently, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex had battled the snow to reach Bristol. Oh, how brave they were, tucked up inside that cosy, chauffeur-driven limousine. We can only be grateful that Megan didn't like Scribble. You don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. As we know, many women who become sex workers are suffering from mental health issues and domestic abuse. We can also thank the Lord that Megan didn't daub, feel the fear and do it anyway. I imagine terror is what races through these young women's minds every time they get in a car with a man. But that's the problem with self-help mantras. Even the most well-intentioned can misfire dreadfully because the scribbled-on bananas change absolutely nothing. Not because they will soon turn brown, destined for landfill. Not because, well, do women on the streets in sub-zero temperatures actually want to eat bananas in the first place? Is the inclusion of one of their five a day a bit of a politically correct virtue signalling when, in reality, each of these women's five a day has an altogether different, more shocking meaning? Should they even glance at the slogans written by the Duchess? I'm sure the sex workers are intelligent and lucid enough to understand these platitudes are untrue because they are not strong. If they were, they would stop selling their bodies. They are not loved If they were, by a man, their families, by friends, by society, they would be given shelter, a job. They're not special. They know this every time they have sex with a man for money. It's a very American thing to do, what Megan did the other morning. Tell people lies that don't really work to sell books or a brand. People were encouraged to own their own failures back in the 1990s. Life is a journey, so the thinking went with bumps and setbacks along the way that can be overcome if you can get the better mindset. These sort of messages are well-meaning, of course. You know, it's like, oh, you can be whatever you want to be. Well, you can't, actually. You're bloody useless. So these... (laughs) (laughs) These messages are dangerously misguided. They give the illusion that we're all in charge of our own destiny. If only we pull our blasted socks up. The problem is not everyone's life's journey will work out. It won't be okay. Sometimes women are victims. Sometimes women aren't powerful. Women can be people pleasers, shy, unconfident, fragile, damaged. No amount of positivity with a marker pen changes the fact that a woman was abused as a child, beaten up by her husband, sacked, raped, robbed. 
Words are easy. Part of the problem with Twitter. Outpourings make the writer feel better, but not necessarily anyone else. Megan's childish daubings are what we women always say to each other when we've been dumped, fired or gained two stone. It's his loss. That will make you stronger. It's a new chapter. The extra pounds look good on you. It's the lazy friends shoring up of our egos that doesn't involve lifting a finger. It's far harder to offer a bed for the night or rewrite someone's CV, pull in favours, lend them money, get them an internship, be a gym buddy. I'm sorry to bring up Diana, which Harry did frequently, didn't he, over the last three hours. But Diana knew that holding someone's hand wasn't enough. She had to put her own life on the line as she did when campaigning to ban landmines. What these women on the mean streets of Bristol need is practical help. Everything else is window dressing. Even retired footballers in Manchester, not the most intelligent of beings, gave over an empty hotel to the homeless one winter. We know Meghan has a big heart. She adopted a beagle after all. Unfortunately, the women she's trying to reach out to with her messages are nowhere near as cute and cuddly and easy to love. I'd have more admiration for her if, when she's finished doing up the cottage in Windsor Great Park, with the help of the interior designer from Soho House, she were to open its doors as a refuge. That would show women their love. That would show these women they are special. Now, Mecca didn't like that piece. No, I'm sure she didn't. And Megan also didn't like a piece I wrote about her cradling a bump. You know, yeah, she kept cradling yeah, her yeah. bump. And I yeah. said, women who cradle their bumps, they want to make those of us who are child-free feel like our wombs are as empty as my Le Creuset and that we failed and they're superior to us. It's like those women who drive cars and you're behind them at the petrol station and they've got a, a sign on the back saying baby on board. And you know there hasn't been a baby on board since 1974. I don't really get that because please don't crash into me anyway. No, I might, no beagle, I might have a beagle on board. You might have beagle a beagle on board. board. Don't crash into so me. So please don't crash into me. So I had a go at Megan about the bananas and I had a go at Megan about cradling her bump the whole time. So I'm not on her Christmas card list. And this week in the mail, I had a go at her for wearing white all the time. And the reason she was crying on the sofa was because Harry had a barrow and she was worried she was going to have to go to Johnson's Dry Cleaners. You've got a thing about Johnson's Dry Cleaners now, but yes, you're not going to let that one go. But if you are not going to be robust enough to say, OK, yeah, maybe I didn't really help, help the women at the refuge. I just turned up. It was snowing. I wrote on some bananas. I went home. If you're not robust enough to take that criticism along with the, oh, my God, the Markle Sparkle, doesn't she look amazing, Stella McCartney, da, 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 da. Don't marry into the royal family. Don't become a movie star. Don't become prime minister. Do you know, if you're yeah. not robust enough to accept and nobody like me criticising her writing on bananas, don't marry the, into the royal family. Well, it's always, it's just an opinion, isn't it? That's your opinion. Other people will have a different opinion and say, you know, she was trying to be nice, she was trying to make these women feel better. Everyone's got a different opinion and everyone just, you know, when you're writing... You've no, but I was opinion, right, though, because 
writing messages for sex workers changes nothing. Same as, you know, I criticise Catherine as well. She turns up at a school and kneels down and smiles and shakes hands. What does that actually change? It's got to be more proactive and practical, 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 practical. Money, housing, jobs, internships, break the glass ceiling. Just writing on a banana, a rabbit could do that. It doesn't change anything. No, no, I agree. You need a practical approach. And I think that's what they they were trying to do when the four of them was doing the mental health charity, wasn't it? Well, that didn't work, did it? They didn't even help Megan with her suicidal thoughts. They haven't talked about that, have they? But I kind of think you've got the access to the best psychiatrists, the best counsellors, the best of everything in that situation. I can't see why getting help would be a problem. I can't. I just... I can't get my head around a lot but of But I don't think the royal family wanted her to fail because no. they've already failed so many times no. with Fergie, with Diana, with Andrew. Edward was a complete waste of space, wasn't he? Margaret created scandals, didn't she, yeah. with whatever his name was. They didn't want Meghan to fail, but there was an interesting line in Valentine Lowe's book, Courtiers. They all felt her agenda was she wanted it to fail. She no, came I, in I expecting it to that. fail. Mm, I'm not sure fail is the right word. I think her trajectory was to do it the way she wanted. And if she didn't have the freedoms and if she didn't have, you know, the ability to live her life as she wanted to, as she said, to, to survive, not you know, thrive, she, it was important for her to live her life in a certain way. Yeah. You know, I mean, the Queen apparently was very supportive. She offered her Sophie Wessex, you know, to help her. Her husband should have supported her more. I mean, it's all very well sitting at her, looking at her besottedly and lovingly, but tell her when and how to curtsy. So I, I wrote a cover story for You magazine about Meghan just before the wedding, and I said, though Meghan has Diana's luminous star quality, she has none of her no- neurosis or fragility. I doubt she will have encountered snobbery before, but that's where Harry comes in. She's delightfully unguarded. She uses the word organic in BBC broadcasts. Just before she got married in the mail on Sunday, I wrote, all eyes are on them now, and this is the year of Meghan Markle. She's going to sparkle. Harry will go even redder with pride. And up somewhere up there, Diana will be watching. This is not a game. It is her life and his. Let's just let them live it. Absolutely. I do think his mum will be quite proud of him in terms of getting away from the institution and getting a lovely wife and having children and just having a life of his own. I think she'd be quite proud of that. She would love that, wouldn't she? Yeah. For herself. Do you know what I've been reading this week? Go on. Do you know, I was so desperate to get my paws on this book and it's called We Danced on Our Deaths by Philip Norman. And a couple of years ago, I spotted Philip Norman at a Mail on Sunday Christmas party. And I went up to him because I don't think people do this enough, really. And there wasn't a restraining order. I went up to Philip Norman and I said, you are the most amazing writer. You're the reason I went into journalism. You're just amazing. And you've met Paul McCartney yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And he went all red round his ears. Oh, oh. So 
We dance on our deaths. And so, it- hang on a second. I've just got to say, Philip Norman writes a book called We Danced on Her Desk. It's a little bit different to Liz Jones' We Weed in Our Chairs. I expect he did that as well. <laughs> so, his book is about winning a writing competition and he worked for the Sunday Times magazine throughout the 60s and 70s. And he went on tour with the Beatles and Eric Clapton and the Rolling Stones and... He was really arrived on Fleet Street. It wasn't in Fleet Street. It was on the Grayson Road near King's Cross. But it was Fleet Street, really. He arrived at the cusp of swinging London. And he had the most amazing career. And the money they had to spend, because it was a colour magazine, they had so much advertising. And... It was just so interesting. The first person he meets when he joins the Sunday Times is Mrs. Susan Raven. And she's then a bit of a dolly bird in a, in a short skirt. So when I joined, which was at the beginning of the 80s, so I was at the Sunday Times magazine for all of the 80s and all of the 90s, the first person I met was Mrs. Susan Raven. And she gave me my first published piece which I'd gone to her with it because I knew him as a student. So my first published piece was in Sunday Times magazine was A Day in the Life of Rupert Everett. And I still consider him a friend, although I haven't really seen him since. And my second piece she gave me, you can see I was after men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't realise Rupert was gay, although when I went to interview him in his house off King's Road, he was just wearing pyjamas. And I got him into a lot of trouble because I wrote that he was always drunk and he went to get his coffee wearing his pyjamas and he almost got sacked. Never mind, he forgave me. My next piece with Mrs Susan Raven, who's in this book, was I interviewed Nick and Barry Kamen. Oh, now you're talking. The Levi ad. Now you're talking. In the laundrette. Yeah. The Levi ad in the laundrette. Barry Kamen was an artist, his brother, Green Eyes. They weren't white. Do you know it's playing in, in my... I'm not even listening to what you're saying. The whole advert is playing Do you playing want me to sing head. Marvin Gaye? No. No. Do, do, do. do you remember the beginning? I heard it through the grapevine. Yes. As his trousers come off. But my friends slowly. who need... Do you know my friends who need them are my best friends since we were 18? Trousers come off slowly. My best friend, Sue Needleman. <laughs> She's not as enticing as Nick came and taking his trousers off. I'm sorry, love. My best friend, Sue Needleman, who I've known since I was 18, cast Nick Kamen in that advert. Did she? Yes. Oh. Well done, her. She gave me many hours of pleasure. Uh, anyway, so reading Philip's book, which is absolutely brilliant, he's so funny and he's so witty and he's so self-deprecating, it just reminded me of how brilliant that era was. And if you worked at the Sunday Times magazine, you knew you were the best in the world. And you would turn up every day, and he said he didn't need a holiday because it was so brilliant, and I didn't need a holiday, and you just turned up. And you were just so excited that you were sent to interview Prince with Lord Snowden. And the fashion editor was Meryl McEwey, and she just wore Prada, 
and Chanel head to toe and the drinking. And I remember there was a creative director called Michael Rand who had his office and he had his team who protected him. And he was a creative director of the Sunday Times magazine. I was there for 20 years. He never spoke to me once. No. And he never spoke to Philip either. (laughs) (laughs) He was so scary. Oh, my God. And every now and then, the whole Sunday Times magazine crew were taken onto the roof at Grazing Road. We refused to go to Wapping at first. Because you remember there was the print strike and all the unions. Yeah. We were laid off for a year and we, we were all fully paid and there was nothing to do. We ref- because we just ignored what the newspaper was doing and they ignored us. And we hated everyone on the newspaper and everyone on the newspaper hated us. And we thought we were superior to the newspaper because, you know, the photographers I worked with, Sebastien Sogardo, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Lord Snowden, who didn't, that one. he didn't know who Prince was. And then every few years you would go on the roof and they'd take a picture of all the people who were on the Sunday Times magazine, all the stars. And my picture that year was taken by Terry O'Neill, who was married to Faye Dunaway. <gasps> and it was a big panoramic picture, like a school picture. We'll come to that in a minute. And it was put on the wall of the Sunday Times. And when people left or died, the art director scrubbed out their faces with a scalpel. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like something from a horror film, like some sort of voodoo picture. But everyone was so brilliant. And it got you into places. It just opened doors. And you were so proud to say you worked there. And you couldn't wait to turn up. And it was just... I don't think people have that much fun now when they're at work, but we had so much fun. I cannot tell you how much fun we had. It was just hysterical and used to play tricks on people and lie to people and hoodwink people. and <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> put threats on people and, and used to spend so much money. And I remember when it was the massacre in Scotland... Um, Dunblane. Oh, God, yeah. And, and Andy Murray was a pupil and all the children were killed. And I remember saying to the editor of Sunday Times magazine, I've got to go to Dunblane, I've got to go to Dunblane. I can't believe this has happened. And he said, you can't go because you haven't had children. What difference does that make? Because he felt I couldn't be empathetic enough. So you have to be a mother to to yeah. be, to, to be yeah. sorry that children have been killed. But it's funny, that's, so oh, many so many things that Philip encounters, like he wasn't sent to Vietnam, he wasn't sent to Cambodia, and he was gutted, and he thought, I should be going, I should be going to the war zones, I should be going. Yeah. Like, the minute Ukraine was invaded, I asked my editor if you I did. could go. Yeah, you did. So Philip misses out, so someone else is sent, but the... Of another star who's his rival, and on like the second day, he's shot in the head and killed. <sighs> and all the time, Philip is wondering why some of his pieces don't go in, and his mum keeps saying to him, This is the thing about being a writer, you're always fearful yeah. that you're not good enough, and someone else better than you is going to come along. And even someone like Philip, who's was Paul McCartney's biographer yesterday. Oh, God. 
his mum would say to him, Philip, I've not I've not seen seen you in the magazine recently. And thanks, mum. And all uh, thanks, mum. And all his friends thought he died. And you know how offended I get. Yeah, yeah, Liz, yeah. is your pre-love fashion gone? But don't ask me that. Don't ask me that. Has my pre-love fashion piece gone in? No, I don't know. It's like, and it made me realise. You know, his, he did the same walk as me. He got out of Chancery Lane and walked towards the Sunday Times offices. And all the people we used to work with, I mean, he reminded me, I used to edit Dillis Powell's copy and she was a film, edit, film critic. And the most famous, best film critic in the whole of the world. And I edited her copy. Yeah. And it used to arrive on a piece of paper, but her typewriter was missing lots of characters. <laughs> Because she was so, so I had to fill in the missing. She didn't have an E and she didn't have an R. I think she had a cat. He picked them <laughs> off her typewriter. So I had to by by using ink fill in Dillis Powell's Dillis Powell's film reviews using ink. That's hilarious. When I first started the Sunday Times magazine, we didn't even have a photocopier. They hadn't been invented. Do you think it was better though? I mean, now we've got all this technology and everything's done. No, now. it's not better now. Is it? Was it better doing the, it that way? The care. I cannot tell you the care and the pride we took in everything. So I would write a stand first to a piece. So it might be Zoe Heller's column or it might be an interview with East Saint Laurent or it might be um, captions for Onikati Besson. It might be the famine in Sudan. So I sent Adrian Gill, who was a, f- a food critic, dead now, to Sudan to write about a famine. Don't you think that's a good idea to send a food critic to Sudan to write about the famine? That weren't what killed him, was it? No, he got cancer. Oh, you said he was dead now, so I'm just checking you didn't you weren't responsible. And he wrote a brilliant piece from piece from Sudan about the food famine and how all the other journalists they were sending starving people up into trees to pick leaves for a photo opportunity. Oh my God. And I remember a very, 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 very famous photographer took a picture for my magazine, I was editing the piece, of a baby crawling towards a feeding station. That was a spread, it was a double-page spread. The Rwanda story was also awful of people being macheted and we got into lots of trouble because our pictures are too graphic. But anyway, there was a picture, a double-page spread of a baby crawling towards a feeding station and I said to the photographer why didn't you pick the baby up yeah why didn't you pick the baby up yeah because that kind of made me fall out of love with reportage and and and, and reporting on walls and all the stuff that I did it's because they didn't really care about the story they cared about the kudos yeah 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 that's awful, though. How could you watch? If I'm in a if help? I'm in a square in Ethiopia with donkeys who don't have water, I will fight the pe- yeah. I will put down my typewriter and I will fight the people who yeah. do not give the water to the donkeys. Yeah, 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 absolutely. How but a lot of not? these people, it got so arrogant and so award winning. He didn't pick up the baby to take it to the feeding station, and I just thought I can't be I can't be party Part to this it. anymore. I can't be party to it. It's become too glamorous. It's become too much about money. It's become too much about awards. It's become too much about status. You don't care about 
the story. And when I was told I couldn't go and report on Dunblane, I thought, fuck you. Yeah. But what's interesting is that my is that Philip, because there was so much money and you could do whatever you wanted, he started writing books in the office and using the secretary to transcribe stuff. I did that as well. <laughs> I, <laughs> I wrote my prince. I wrote my prince biography in the stationery cupboard, no. and, the, and the secretary transcribed all my interviews during work time. And the editor saw me in the cupboard, and he said, "Oh yeah, carry on." Fantastic. Give and take. Give and take. I don't know, unless you're a journalist, how much you want to read this book. But I loved it. It was just such a snapshot. With memory lane for you, wasn't it? The sixties and the seventies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I do miss hanging out with people like that because they were such characters and every single person there was the most brilliant person in the world. They were. Yeah. And now you've got me. And the and the dogs. And the dogs. You've got me and the collies. Oh how far you've come. (laughs) (laughs) How far you've fallen. Now, this week's column, in which an admirer makes contact. Now, very luckily, everyone, this isn't published until Sunday, and I'm meeting him for a drink on Saturday before it's published. So it could go one way or the other this week. No, but it means he hasn't read it before we meet for the drink. No, I get that. Warning. This column is an illustration of how stupid men are. And they are in charge of us. How is that even possible? So, having read a piece in the Daily Mail about me potentially being made homeless, a man got in touch via LinkedIn. They really don't care, do they? You could be living on the street, they'd still ask you out. I don't, I'm, I don't really get it why you would approach a stranger that you don't have any clues, no. you have any chemistry with or anything in common with and start trying to chat them up online. I don't get it. I don't get it. Anyway, he sent me a message saying, I'm looking for someone I can have interesting conversations with. I'm in my 60s, Nick's vomiting at the moment, solvent, and I'm told I have a great sense of humour. Who says that about themselves? It's like an ad, isn't it? It's like one of them Lonely Hearts ads. Can't understand why you're still single. It's choice. It's choice. It's cho- it's choice. And he hasn't met you. It's choice. He hasn't met you either. <laughs> I absolutely adore dogs, he says. I believe opportunities should be grasped. Oh, no. Another David. This could become very confusing. He looks okay in his photo, slightly balding, but I assume he has teeth and something other than a Santander electron card. He lives in the Midlands. Why does every man who contacts me live in the Midlands? He then suggests we move to WhatsApp, so I texted him my phone number. Anyway, the next day, in the middle of a weekday, he called me four times and left a voicemail. You don't really call people, though, without checking with them first. Especially if you don't know them. That's what I mean. He's not a PPI salesman, is he? No, no. I'm not a 1950s housewife. I'm also deaf. And who calls anyone these days? I never call anyone. In all the years I dated David number one, 
He only called me once, and even then I replied, who's this? And how presumptuous. Have a few texts first, then politely ask if it's okay to call me at the weekend. I would say no, obviously, but don't just call me on a weekday. I listened to his message for research purposes. Oh, come on, you want to know what he says? He has a northern accent. Hi, is that northern? No, that just sounded like... <laughs> it's David. Is that a, is that Northern? No. Stop, stop <laughs> now while you're ahead. Give me a call when you're free. Is that Northern? No, I've no idea what that was. <laughs> your accents are not your fault, eh? There is a problem with Northern men. They're too cocky. David number one was Northern. He went to the RCA, the Rochdale College of Art. They all believe they're Noel or Liam Gallagher. Now, I used to ghostwrite the column of Noel's wife, Meg Matthews, and the Oasis God was always shouting in the background saying, tell Liz she can't write that about me. It makes me look small. Noel Gallagher never got my jokes. Each week, Meg Matthews would drive in her Porsche Boxster to a hotel on the Marybone Road to give me a photo to go with the column. This was all pre-internet. But, oh, my God, I felt as though I was in a James Bond movie. I once ghosted a column about her and Noel's rescue dogs, and she insisted we put black bars over their faces in the photograph in case their former owners, Camden gangsters, recognised the dogs. Those were the days. We had such fun in the mid to late 90s. I was even invited to a party at number 10, to meet Tony Blair. I was thrilled he knew my name and my job and my magazine and then noticed he was wearing a little earpiece through which an aide was telling him who everyone was. Anyway, Northern David number two texted me. Are you okay? He wrote. I tried calling as I thought it best before Sunday. Me. I don't like phone calls as I'm deaf and it was a weekday. Why are you nervous before Sunday? David two. Because you said I wouldn't want to know you after your article in the Mail on Sunday. Me, Liz number one. No, my past articles are numb nuts. 22 years of them. I write about my life. So steer clear. David two. It does take balls to do what you do. Liz one. It does. David two. So where do you live? Liz one. Google me. Oh, God. I did a Beyonce click there. Google me, bitch. Oh, dear. This is all going very... Badly. Badly, yeah. And he did Google me. This is the worst bit. Do you want to hear the worst bit? Go on. He then sent me an internet entry from, from, from Google that states, I was born in 1951. 1951? He's not helping himself, is I he? expect my arch rival on another Sunday newspaper penned that entry. He then told me to switch to WhatsApp. Don't tell me what to do, bitch. Anyway, I switched. I told him off. Why send to me 
an entry that says I was born in 1951. How would you feel if I sent you a Wikipedia entry? Anyway, you're not famous enough to have one that says you are four foot tall and have a very small penis. David, too. It was to show you the photo above the article. You are very attractive. Liz, one. It's like people don't have a filter. Why not think first? Will this upset her? I don't need a photo of myself, thanks very much. I've got a mirror. David, too. Sorry I upset you. I will leave you alone. How are men in charge of us? How? Yeah, it's mm, it's not boding well, is it, really? But why did he... Don't phone me. Don't phone me. Don't phone me. I do. Don't phone me. Who phones anyone? I do love the fact that he sent you a picture of yourself. He sent me a picture of myself saying I was born in 1951. If it had been like 1961 or 71, that would have been all right. Well, just don't do it. I'm just thinking to myself, he's contacted you for a day, but based on what? Because if he doesn't know that you write about boyfriends and it's probably not going to go well for him... He's not Prince Harry, is he? No, he's not. You know, they met each other through Instagram. The funniest... Shall I filter for for everyone all the millions of words that have been written this week about Meghan and Harry down to... Distill it down to one sentence. Shall shall I filter it it for you so you don't have to do it? The funniest sentence of all the coverage was Jan Moyer in today's Daily Mail. And she said that Meghan examined his feed before she agreed to a date. And Jan Moyer writes, older readers, she doesn't mean oats in a bag strapped to his nose. She means Instagram. (laughs) Well done, uh... Well done, Jan. Every week, lots of you get in touch, telling me what you think about my life and my decisions. So I think it's only fair that you get to have your say here on the podcast too. If you'd like to get in touch, then go to lizjonesgoddess.com or tweet me at Liz Jones Goddess. Do we have any letters, Nicola? We do indeed. We have... Don't want any negative ones. I don't want any men from the Midlands asking for me for a date when they're not members of Oasis. Well, that's not negative, is it? If someone contacts you and asks you for a date, it's a compliment. No, but don't phone me. Don't do a don't voice call. Don't phone someone that you don't know when you've just been chatting online. No, 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 no. You've got Tina, which is not my Tina, and she emailed to ask if you was able to help that girl you was talking about last week that contacted you with information about her aunt. No, not really, Tina. (laughs) That was an easy one then. (laughs) Moving swiftly on. I sent her a school photo. What more does she want? Okay, moving swiftly on, we've got Veronica. And Veronica says, Hi, Liz and Nick, where do you ladies stand on the subject of dressing dogs up? How do you feel about Santa outfits and tutus? I can't believe the selection in Pets at Home today, and it's a no from me. We used to dress up Hilda. As a reindeer. Hilda was a reindeer, and she had a little Christmas jumper with the snowflake that she was actually buried in. But Hilda didn't mind it, because Hilda had spent 13 years of her life on a Romanian rubbish tip looking for food. So she actually liked... The attention and the snuggly wolves. I do think reindeer 
outfits and satin to outfits and sort of you know seasonal stuff is it's in, it's a different thing from tutus but you don't have to leave them on for ages it's just for the picture isn't it yeah you dress them up you take pictures we've got great pictures of teddy and boris from last year with their their antlers on yeah but i've already coat. posted a picture of mini puppy with a sweater with the tree on the back you're firmly in the christmas camp aren't you well everyone needs to look forward to our christmas special yeah and mariah will be featuring me as Mariah. Did you hear the news about Celine Dion? I did, that's awful. What does that mean she's going to be a human statue? I don't know. I didn't hear that. I just heard she has some sort of degenerative condition. And my heart will go on. And now's the time to press off. <laughs> 